0: If you have ever done any work with juveniles who have spent time within adult facilities, they'll tell you what I've commonly heard, which is I went into um, jail or prison interested in petty crime, mm-hmm. but I've come in I've come out as a hardened criminal, yeah. the level of criminality, the strategic nature of crime. Those kind of things that I was exposed to within an adult facility is something that no child should ever be exposed to.
1: This is Redemptive Revolution, restoring hope to the formerly incarcerated. I'm Nick Arnold. Today, I'm excited to have Dominic Gilliard, author of the new book, Rethinking Incarceration, back on the show with us. We are going to be discussing the school-to-prison pipeline and how this is impacting our incarceration rates. Dominic, it's great to have you back on the show.
0: Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be back with you and your community again.
1: Great. So let's jump into this uh, school-to-prison pipeline issue. Can you kind of give me an overview of what that is for people who who might not have heard of it before or, or don't know a lot about it? What are the policies and things that are contributing to this problem?
0: Yeah. So, in a brief overview, is the school to prison pipeline looks at how our school systems disciplinary uh, protocol has shifted from one in which uh, juvenile mischief was treated in house through administered. To discipline. They really came down from the principal, principal's office. But that would most often lead to suspensions, and particularly in school suspensions, um, sometimes out of school suspension. But suspension and um, detention were the primary manifestations of school discipline. And it looks at how. Really, since 1972, there has been this strategic and steady shift from that form of discipline to a more punitive form of discipline that has led to an increasing number of Expulsions and arrest, mm-hmm. and the number of arrests particularly uh, are correlated with the increasing number of school resource officers that have been deployed within our school nation schools and um, and how The pure number of officers has a direct correlation between how many students will actually be caught up within the school-to-prison pipeline. So that's what the school-to-prison pipeline is in a nutshell, but specifically I talk about the school-to-prison pipeline as something that traces the well-worn path of predominantly impoverished urban youth of color from decrepit, underfunded, antiquated schools to luxurious, earmarked, state-of-the-art. Prisons. Um, The school to prison pipeline really illuminates the detrimental impacts of zero tolerance policies and high states testing um, on disproportionately impoverished or institutionally neglected schools, and they're exacerbated by the disproportionate way in which these policies are implemented against uh, students of color and students with disabilities.
1: Yeah, that's crazy. And and one of the things I was uh, it was a little bit surprising for me reading um, in your book was that some of these infractions were things like dress code violations or disruptive behavior that you know, maybe it was talking back or, or writing something that was uh, you know against the principal or something like that. It wasn't necessarily like violent infractions. Some of these were just really nonviolent things that they're getting suspended for.
0: Yeah, um, a lot of the suspensions are for trivial offenses. Um, Some of them are very, very um, basic, like a student uh, putting their head down on the desk and not... Uh, not lifting it when a teacher tells them to. And so there are all these ways in which there can be so many th- different things going on with this kid. But when we don't actually take the time to go and actually process with this kid, send this kid to the school counselor and try to unpack what might be going on what some of the trauma or some of the um story about why this kid might just be having a really crappy day and just can't get engaged, just kill. It might be suffering from malnutrition Mm. because they're on free and reduced lunches and say it's Monday and they might not have anything nutritious to eat all weekend. There might literally be these biological factors that are at play, but we just assume that this kid is being disrespectful and therefore must be reprimanded in a punitive way. And it continues to keep this Cycle going on. One of the crazy things about the school to prison pipeline that most people would be really shocked by is how early this starts. Mm. And so, um, these the disproportionate um, punishment for offenses start as young as preschool, wow. to the point that we know that African American kids represent eighteen percent of all preschoolers will represent. 48% of preschoolers who are suspended, expo- expelled, or arrested in schools. I
1: was just so surprised that preschoolers are actually suspended and arrested. I mean, that's, that's just crazy exactly. to me. I mean,
0: yeah.
1: I, I have a preschooler right now, and I can't imagine, you know, that... that I that mean, yeah, would why would taking... you... There's
0: there's no way they can fully comprehend the magnitude of their offense. Yeah. And you're telling me the only way that you can subside this misbehavior or deal with the problem is to shackle Mm -hmm. a preschooler. Like that says something that says more about us as adults in the administration than it does about the kids.
1: Definitely. So these kids are being moved into juvenile detention centers and, and some of them are actually being moved into jails and, and adult prisons. Correct.
0: Yes. So yes, Um, there's 13 states that have no minimum age for trying juveniles as adults.
1: Wow, that's just crazy. What I mean, you know, they're still developing. They're still um, they they, they're they don't have the skills necessary to navigate this, uh, especially in an adult prison. What what are some of the things that are are happening to these kids uh, that are having to go through through uh, time in prison and in juvenile detention centers and in jails?
0: Yeah, so when a juvenile is arrested and charged um, as a minor, they have the option of getting their record expunged before they turn the age of 18. So whatever juvenile transgressions uh, they were arrested and served time for don't actually – distort their life chances going forward they 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 get a second chance at life their record is wiped clean mm-hmm. but if a juvenile is charged as an adult they don't have that option okay so literally whatever happens to them while uh whatever that offense they had or whatever is on their record When they turn 18, that stays on their record and literally limits their chances uh, in regards to vocations and education and housing and these different things. And so I think that definition, I mean, that reality points us back to the work of Michelle Alexander and what she's doing when she tries to describe our system as a system of mass incarceration. And she talks about mass incarceration. One of the things she talks about is that – people with sentences and records, they are released into society, but in a way where they're permanent second-class citizens, Mm -hmm. uh, where they're stripped of basic civil and human rights, like the right to vote, the right to serve on juries, and the right to be free of legal discrimination in employment, housing, and access to public benefits. And so kids who don't have that option of getting their record expunged, especially if they were arrested for a a felony offense, then that literally uh, hampers their life chances for the rest of their lives. Um, And that's not even to mention the trauma and the The torture that so many kids are subjected to when they are arrested in adult facilities. So juveniles who are charged as adults, they're more likely to spend time in adult facilities, and in those adult facilities, they're more likely to be sexually assaulted, and they're also more likely to commit suicide in the midst of their incarceration or right after being incarcerated. Mm -hmm. And if you have ever done any work with juveniles who have spent time within adult facilities, they'll tell you what I've commonly heard, which is I went into um, jail or prison interested in petty crime, Mm -hmm. but I've come come out as a hardened criminal. The level of criminality, the strategic nature of crime, those kind of things that I was exposed to within an adult facility is something that no child should ever be exposed to. And I literally have, permanently been changed. And when you hear that kind of testimony from a youth that you've been walking with, that you've been uh, loving, that you've been helping to try to navigate the complexities of life in underinvested communities, like it's heartbreaking to literally see how the system has hardened and changed and distorted this young person that you knew and that you've walked with and you've seen so much potential in. And so it's just one of the real critical um,
1: failures of our present system right now. One of the th- areas of your book that um, I did want to kind of uh, talk about a little bit, especially since it's it's become, uh, again, a part of our national conversation is about um, having an armed police presence in schools, uh, talking about arming teachers, having additional armed officers in our schools to protect our kids. But like, what is that... What are you thinking about when you're hearing that conversation? What's going through your mind?
0: Well, a couple of things are going through my mind are that I think it's really ironic that school resource officers really only come on the scene in the 1950s in Flint, Michigan, of all places, ironically. Um, But you um, and SROs um, originally are created to improve the relationship between police and particularly communities of color because they they're trying to acknowledge the strained history there. And so what you initially have is the school resource officers are in schools and they are playing these kind of support roles. They're they're playing like an aid, school aid role where they're like assisting gym teachers or they're serving as um they're serving as school counselors, but they're there as aides and they're not there as enforcements of the law. Okay, um, And so they're there to build possible, positive relationships between the students and the officers where they say, hey, this is a friendly person who's here to help me. This is a person where I'm in trouble or I have questions, I turn to an officer. They're trying to philosophically change our orientation towards officers. And that continues to transpire for a while. But there is this critical shift that happens within the role of school resource officers after Columbine happens. After Columbine happens, what you see is that the role of school resource officers fundamentally shifts from one of a school aide to an enforcer of the law. And so you have parents, you have concerned citizens, community members who are advocating rightly for um, more accountability and safer – safer. Um, campuses because of all of this increased gun violence and the violations that are happening. Um, But the irony of what happens is that With Columbine's, the role starts to shift, and literally they start to enforce the law. But then after Sandy Hook, you get another increased, a real increased spike in um, funds that are endowed to schools, specifically for school resource officers. And so in both of these cases and most of these cases where we're seeing these school shootings, they're disproportionately happening in affluent suburban communities, right? Yep, yep. But disproportionately, where the officers are being deployed to actually enforce the law are in um, disenfranchised communities of color. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's really ironic that the funding and the the support and the legitimization for the increased number of police stems from a community, a problem that's happening in affluent suburban Caucasian communities. But the officers then, after the funding is earmarked, are actually being deployed disproportionately to disenfranchised communities of color. That's interesting. And we... So we see, but nobody's talking about that. But that's something that like, the documentation like bears that out. And so I'm really interested in why that's the case and why nobody's talking about this. So the Atlantic actually wrote an article where they found that schools where at least half of the children are non-white as well as high poverty schools, meaning where at least 75% of the students are eligible for free or reduced lunches. Are home to the highest percentages of the country in regards to k through twelve law enforcement mm. so like it's documented that this is what's happened, and it's also documented that the funding was earmarked directly in relation correlation to these school shootings, but where the officers are being deployed are disproportionately within communities of color, so when I actually hear this conversation. I'm searching for somebody who's willing to have this more authentic conversation about how has this come to be, um, and what has this meant for the disproportionate number of uh, students of color have been swept up within the school-to-prison pipeline.
1: Yeah, and and – We've seen a number of cases of just uh, some of the enforcement, especially in these uh, lower uh, income schools that uh, are are very uh, kind of violent displays of, of enforcement for uh, kind of what we're talking about. Some, uh, you know, yeah, maybe some talking back and things like that, but kind of not necessarily a, a right use of force. It seems like being uh, directed at these kids.
0: And yeah, and that that speaks to another critical problem, which is that the research also yields that the vast majority of school resource officers have received absolutely no training on the difference between policing uh, out on the streets or policing a school. Right. And to the point that literally in um, most states, juvenile justice issues feel just 1% of the training that officers receive within police academies, 1%. And there is specialized training that is available. And so part of what I talk about in the book is that the church has a responsibility to actually advocate for um, legislation that is going to help change and shape our system into a more restorative system. One of the very tangible ways that we can do that in regards to this conversation is that 90% of police officers have received literally no training on adolescent school, I mean on adolescent brain development. Mm -hmm. So they literally don't understand what it means to police a school versus out on the streets. So, juvenile mischief is being criminalized in a way in which officers are responding the exact same way to something that, you know, is just literally juvenile mischief as if they would out on the streets when they were responding to a criminal offense. And so that has led to this disproportionate number of students of color who are being enforced by these SROs who are disproportionately located in their communities. Um, but it's also led to this overzealous use of for of excessive force against little kids. And particularly we see this dynamic where there has been a lot white male law enforcement who have been using disproportionate force against young women of color. Mm. And so we We saw this in South Carolina with Ben Fields, who literally yanks a 16 year old girl out of her desk, drags her across the ground, and then puts his neck, I mean, puts his knee in the back of her neck as he handcuffs her. Um, So many of us also saw. The incident that didn't happen in a school but happened in McKinley, Texas, where we saw Officer Eric Casebolt do a very similar thing where he yanks a young girl by her hair, a 14 year old girl, by her hair to the ground and again uses excessive force as he repeatedly shoves his knee into the back of her neck. Mm-hmm. Um, and we See this kind of over aggressive, overzealous policing by men, particularly in most cases, white male officers against young women of color. And there's so little accountability that has happened in these instances, it just really makes us have to ask new questions about our um about how law enforcement is being deployed against our youth.
1: Yeah, definitely. That's uh, those are, and I've seen some of those videos. Those are just terrible things to watch. I really want to end here on a on a positive note, if I can, a hopeful yeah, note. Yeah, let's
0: do it. <laughs> um,
1: in your book, and on this uh, in this section, you talk about uh, two unlikely allies that that come together. Their names are Hillary and Lauren. Can you kind of briefly give us a little bit of background of of how they met and the circumstances around how they met, and just the inspiration that we should be taking for for what they're doing now together.
0: Yeah, I mean, so they really meet in this this tragic situation where there was a community in Luzerne County, Pennsylvania, where there was an officer. Well, there, sorry, there was a, a judge by the name of Mark Shivarella Jr. who was really being lauded as one of the top uh, judges in the nation, and he had won all of these uh, awards in his particular region, Um, and he was really respected for being known as this kind of get tough on crime, kind of law and order kind of judge. But it ultimately turned out that he and another judge uh, were involved in this big Kids for Cash scandal is what it came to be known as, where the officer – I mean where the judges uh, collaborated with a friend who was building a new private prison, and the officers were literally sending juveniles to jail – and incarcerating them for very, very trivial offenses, like mm. a water balloon fight was the case in one of the instances. And they ultimately went back and traced Chivarella's record, and they had to find out that for about eight years, he was involved in incarcerating people wrongly Um and that these Jews, many of these youth, should have never spent any time in jail because um, they were there just on trumped up charges. Because ultimately, all the people Shivarella was incarcerating, he was sending to one particular place wow. the private prison that his friend was building. And so, through the court cases, it turned out that. Um, They had been in cahoots the whole time, and that was the agreement that they were just going to incarcerate a ton of youth and send them all to the one prison so they could populate the prison and then legitimate um, all the costs and be able to break a deal where they both were going to reap unholy dividends Mm -hmm. from the incarceration of the youth. Um, So the irony, though, is that in this case, you see this. Um, unlikely alliance that happens between uh, one of the young ladies who was actually one of the very last people who were incarcerated by Chivarella, uh, a young lady by the name of Hillary, who ultimately over Facebook becomes friends with um, Shivarella's daughter, Lauren. Um, And so Hillary, because she was arrested during towards the end of Shirella's reign, she ultimately didn't spend that much time in jail. Mm-hmm. She was only there for uh, about a month or so, and she was able to get her life back on track. And um, But because she knew how many other kids um, had been uh, implicated by this, she became a really strong advocate for uh, trying to... Uh, you know, correct the school to prison pipeline and actually expose some of the horrific realities of it. And Lauren, because she also went through all of the details that her family was really drugged through um, the mud uh, in relationship to some of these grievous offenses, she became a real advocate and she actually is a lawyer who's committed herself to actually um, – making the school to pipeline – I mean, I'm sorry, uh, reforming the school to prison pipeline. And so the two of them met over Facebook, talked a couple times, and then they realized that they had a very deep commitment to the same thing, reforming the system. And so they've become allies who actually were working at working on changing the system from two very different avenues, but they're equally committed. And they actually check in back one another um, – And go back and forth with one another about how they, from their particular angles, can ultimately achieve this common goal.
1: That's beautiful. And I just really think it just speaks to the, the fact that we we really have to tackle this together. We have to find ways of bridging those those gaps and, and to really come together on these issues. And when we do that, you know, in America, we, we found that we can really t- conquer some pretty big things. Um, so I, I'm really glad that you included that story in your book, because I just thought it was it's such a great way of, of really finding a way out of this mess.
0: Yeah, no, it was beautiful, but this from when I was doing the research, I came across the story, and I was just like, this is amazing, because it wasn't just like what Chevrolet did impacted a couple of people. There were over 4,000 cases that had to be overturned wow. over from 2003 to 2008, so for this five-year period where he was really intensely um, incarcerating people and sending them directly to this one private prison, there were over... 4,000 youth who had their lives permanently uh, changed by Judicial injustice Like there's literally no other way To describe this but systemic sin That's what it was Mm -hmm. And so when you see That somebody like Hillary Can be um, touched by this And then turn around And give her life to counteracting This kind of institutional injustice It's such a beautiful story And it was such a Touching story even to see how Lauren responded to What her father had done But she did it in a way where she said, you know, I could put my head down. I could turn my—I could disassociate myself. I could even commit myself to law and order in a good way for the rest of my life. But she didn't just do that. She said something else was required of me. Because of what my father did, I had a responsibility actually to work to actually deconstruct the school-to-prison pipeline. And I just thought that that was so beautiful and transformative because the reality is most of the kids who were impacted by Judge Chivarella were not as as fortunate as Hillary. Mm-hmm. Um one of the case one of the stories I tell um quickly is about uh, a young man by the name of Ed- Edward Kaczynski who literally um, after being in, uh, incarcerated, he had psycho-emotional abuse um, that he endured during the midst of his incarceration. And he had all of these bouts with depression. And in the, right after he was released, uh, within two weeks of him being released, he committed suicide. Uh, because of the trauma that he endured, for something that he never should have been incarcerated for, and so you literally have changed the entire family fabric and network of of this Kaczynski family because of the love of money. And you know, one of the things I try to drive throughout the book is really we should not be shocked by stories like the kids. Uh, kids for a cash scandal, mm. and we should not be shocked by the reality of mass incarceration evolving into this lucrative industry, because scripture tells us for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, mm. and that's what we're seeing unfold oh, right before our eyes. Mass incarceration has devolved into this evil, sinister system that is literally predicated upon the exploitation of vulnerable people, and the exploitation of the incarcerated population for their labor. And so I think, you know, I really take appreciate you taking the time to highlight this because this really is a spiritual issue. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, Dominic, really appreciate the time today. I can't wait to have you back on someday.
0: All right. Thank you so much. Thanks. God bless y'all.
1: You definitely want to go out and pick up Dominic's new book, Rethinking Incarceration Today. I guarantee that it will challenge your perceptions of mass incarceration. Give me a shout as well. You can connect with me on Facebook or Twitter. Just search for Redemptive Revolution or visit redemptiverevolution.com. That's it for today, but join me next time on Redemptive Revolution.